0: Okay, welcome listeners to Iron Radio. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I'm here with Dr. Mike Nelson, uh, Mr. Sean Casey, Mr. Corey Van Wyck, and Mr. Grant Slack. We have all just attended a conference, and I've said this many times before, but I think one of the great things about podcasts is you can sort of go on-site in a virtual way and, and experience something. So we're going to share some thoughts uh, on the American Society of Exercise Physiologists conference uh, of course, from a, always from that sort of strength and muscle mass perspective when possible. Uh, we're going to run down the itinerary, and we're going to hand around the microphone, and we're going to talk about what we learned either by preparing a talk or listening to someone else. Uh, the morning started with a talk by uh, Mr. Pat Ayers. He's from Minnesota, and it was on psychology and self-talk. Uh, one of the things I found interesting about this was he was talking about when people start to exercise, uh, they either associate or dissociate uh, with that exercise. In other words, like what jumps to my mind is associators. The old Tom Platt's mind in the muscle concept comes to mind. You're you're purposely feeling the barbell in your hand. You're trying to you know feel the muscle stretch and get a pump and all that that sort of thing and. Uh, that's associating, but then there are others, other, another strategy is dissociating. And, and I like what he said about everybody has this self-talk, whether you're aware of it or not, you know. Uh, and the dissociators are going to try to I don't know. Think about music or or something pleasant, or they don't want to think about the exercise. And I don't want to sound bad, like that's mostly the the endurance people who dissociate. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, but any thoughts about that, uh, Corey? Did you have any thoughts about that whole self talk stuff?
1: Uh, yeah, he. Uh, I mean, the the self talk stuff seemed relatively you know basic as far as you know, make sure that you're saying things to yourself. He, he would focus on words, like say words like strong, powerful, fast, and include that in you know, the things that you say to yourself. Um, and then with like the association-dissociation thing, um, you know, we kind of see that in sometimes with, with athletes, some more of your high-level athletes who are really engaged, they may work, do better on thinking about more about the muscle or a specific body part. So with the mind-muscle connection... Uh, if let's say we're performing like an RDL and you want to get more out of that exercise for them, you would maybe say, you know, make sure you get a good stretch in your hamstrings and they would know what you mean by that. And they would be able to do that. And that would improve, you know, their RDL. Okay. Versus someone who is more dissociative, uh, that they're like, that may kind of screw them up a little bit. Like, what what do you, what do you want me to do here? Uh, for them, we may say something like touch the wall behind you with your butt. Or pretend like something's behind you and reach for it with your butt. And that will naturally give them more of a stretch on the hamstrings. And therefore, they're going to get more out of the exercise. So uh, it depends on person-to-person, level of athlete, what works for them. And sometimes uh, referencing more of the body may work for somebody. But more referencing outside the body would be, work better for somebody else. So that's kind of what I took away from that. Okay.
0: Uh, Then we moved on to a talk uh, from Dr. Keith Miller. He's a biochemist, and he was there uh, to enforce this the the Friday theme, which is how exercise affects not just physical, but mental health. And he gave a a nice lecture about the molecular mechanisms that are happening in your brain as you exercise. Uh, And I'm going to, Grant here, he's been on the show before when we've um, broadcasted sort of Abroad or you know not here in the state, but uh, he's a biochemist and he's going to tell us a little bit about what he took away from this uh, molecular mechanisms talk, the brain biochemistry talk.
2: Uh, yeah, so some of the stuff I took away from Dr. Miller's talk was basically exercise is changing more than just your muscles; it's changing the way your brain is structured and thus the way your brain functions. And so one of the points he brought up was you can increase uh, the amount of glial cells that are in your brain, and this can basically help with neuroplasticity and many other effects in your brain. He brought up a study where apparently if you exercise four hours after learning new material, it can help with memory retention and learning. Uh, And then additionally, besides increasing the amount of glial cells, it can increase different neurotransmitter productions such as dopamine and influence your mood and other aspects in your brain. Uh, The other very interesting point that he brought up was the classic apparently maybe myth that exercise and endorphin release gives you that mood boost after you're done exercising. He didn't say it was false, but a lot of the current research is indicating that it may be through a different mechanism and not through endorphins that gives you this mood boost after exercise. He wasn't saying that you don't get a mood boost after exercise because that's pretty well established, but it might be not through an endorphin mechanism. But those were pretty much the main points that I took away from his talk. The only other thing I got out of that was he was saying that the biochemists
0: are finally developing tools to look more closely at this stuff. Like, It's always fascinating to me how scientists, they they try to pick a particular measurement, a, a variable that they can test. So you could say, I have a runner's high. Well, what's causing that? Do you mean opioid production? You know, there was some talk throughout the day from Frank White about, you know, natural cannabinoid production, you know, or is it dopamine? Is it serotonin doing something? And he also made the good point that it's rarely one thing, too. So it's easy to point the finger, oh, you know, endorphins make us, you know, have that runner's high.
3: The next talk uh, during the day was uh, one that myself, Sean Casey, and uh, Lonnie, and Mike Nelson put together. Um, but we were just looking at uh, sports nutrition and exercise. Like, you know, um, obviously a lot of the people, uh, listeners of the show, they have, you know, certain supplements they may take, you know, different dietary strategies. And uh, and does this versus the general public give us, like, almost added armor from a cognitive level, from a mood standpoint? And can the these sport nutrition techniques we're using be of benefit to a much larger population Um, on that level. So that was the first thing that we were looking with. And with that, uh, Dr. Lowry kind of let off some of the research on caffeine.
0: We'll just do this in sort of a roundtable way. So we had the unenviable task of picking very few things that would both be helpful for sports nutrition and cognition or mood, you know, that sort of thing. So I shared a little bit of uh, the coffee work that we have done, maybe not surprisingly, Uh, So I'll just cover that, and then I'll I'll pass things on to Dr. Nelson. But um, coffee, like exercise, increases dopamine production in your brain. That's a feel good, you know. uh, It's catecholamine neurotransmitter, and it's going to help with maybe things a lot of people don't. They might take for granted. So it's curious to me. In fact, we've got some samples in a freezer right now. We're going to Grant and I are going to look at the dopamine, hopefully, eventually content um, or epi and nor epi, different you know hormones. Uh, but do they stack? You know, exercise increases dopamine output and so does coffee. I would actually think they might stack in some way. I mean, look how popular pre-workouts are. Uh, you know, and that sort of thing. But so we also showed some data on the psychological aspects of coffee. And I think one of the interesting points with that is that it's not an endless linear, you know, uh, type of curve where the more caffeine you consume, the better and better your performance gets. In fact, at one point, we now I'm not saying coffee doesn't boost performance in caffeine, it does. About 10, 12% if you're naive, maybe 6 or 8% if you're um, caffeine habituated. But... There was an uncoupling, uh, and we shared some of this data, um, I don't know, maybe half a year ago, where people felt increasingly alert, but they weren't moving the bar in parallel with that. In other words, they felt like they were moving the bar, they felt jazzed, but they weren't actually performing any better, and it's kind of fun to look at that. Now, everybody performed better. But again, with the escalation you know, of mood, it didn't automatically on a one-for-one basis make the bar move that much faster, the more jazzed you felt. So there was almost a little uncoupling from the mental and the physical side of things. And then uh, I just touched on what, what coffee could do uh, for mental health professionals too. Because, because of that dopamine release, coffee has repeatedly been shown to help improve depression. Uh, there's both both chronically and more acutely. Uh, the one thing it might do on a negative side, though, is worsen anxiety or certain aspects of bipolar behavior. Uh, maybe that's obvious to a lot of people. I would think coffee is sort of a feel-good thing. The one thing I did not get to present that was in my literature review, though, was that men and women differed in how they sought coffee when they were under stress. And this, I'm, this is very reflective of me. On stressful days, I drink more coffee. Yeah. Well, that's actually counterproductive in many ways. So I'm doing it like a pacifier, but if it worsens anxiety, what am I doing? So if you're a guy, you might want to think about that. Um, but yeah, so having said that, we were talking, of course, about how uh, some of these sports nutrition uh, compounds nutrients dietary strategies might affect mental health because I think counselors in particular sometimes they're trying to use talk therapy to improve someone's mood or reduce anxiety and if their brain biochemistry is completely out of whack because they're missing a nutrient or a hormone is off then we need to think about these ingestions and how they can affect that but having said that I know Mike talked about some other uh, nutrients and
4: supplements yeah, so one of the other ones I talked about was uh, beta-alanine. So as people listening to this probably know, uh, beta-alanine combines with histanine to form uh, carnosine inside the muscle, which also works to help buffer those pesky hydrogen ions you get from doing your high-REP sets. So it's the hydrogen ions that are actually more of the acid, not necessarily the lactate per se, or lactic acid as it's commonly called. So, there was a review study that looked at just a meta analysis of a bunch of studies from, I think it was Hobson, and they found like a 2.85% mean increase in performance with beta alanine, but it ranged from like a negative 0.36 to 10.4%, I think. So, a pretty wide range. So, some people didn't really see anything, actually got a little bit worse. Some people got a pretty big benefit. So, again, just depends. If you're an average lifter, yeah 3% you know that's not too bad if you're more of an elite athlete then you know 3% is a pretty massive change to that and they had some other data from Hoffman that looked at beta alanine under stressful versus non-stressful conditions and in the non-stressful condition they really didn't see too much of a change and in the stressful condition they did see more of a change for beta alanine actually seemed to have a more greater performance effect and that was in the Israeli Defence Force. It's actually a military group that they studied it, which I thought was interesting they had like a hundred percent compliance with like <laughs> the intake of the dietary supplement, which people studying beta alanine most of the time, they use a six gram per day dose. So it's usually four grams or I'm sorry, four doses per day to get just six grams. So it's kind of a pain. I I still have beta alanine in my cupboard, and I take it every once in a while, and I just don't take it four (laughs) times a day consistently. I think it's been there for like three and a half years now. (laughs) Um, The last one they had was, uh, I talked a little bit about fossil tidal serene, uh, which may help with some stress stuff. Um, About 800 milligrams per day is what you would need. Uh, The downside is that it's relatively expensive. It's not crazy expensive. Some of the literature is kind of mixed and. Even if you're, I tried once one point to look at a supplement that had it, but even just ordering the raw material of phosphatidylserine is still pretty expensive. So that kind of makes a little bit of a downside. And Sean's going to talk to us about some creatine stuff. All right. So the the main topic that I was looking at was uh, creatine. I'm sure uh,
3: many listeners of the show here know the benefits of creatine from a muscle standpoint. You know, the ability to supply that high energy um, on demand. You know, in between sets speeding up recovery so you have the extra few reps per set Um, but you know this it does the same thing from a brain standpoint Uh, looking at the research roughly from five to eight grams of creatine per day increase uh uh, creatine levels in the brain roughly eight to twelve percent uh you know and uh the brain is a very high energetically demanding organ in the body
4: For most people
1: (laughs)
3: But what uh, the creatine seems to do is the body has a slight delay in, in, you know, sending blood to a given area in the brain. But with the creatine, if you can increase stores, you have that high energy right off the bat, and it's you know not uh, fatiguing quite as quick. So they did a couple interesting studies. Uh, one gave uh, individuals. This was looking at cognition levels based off mat- mathematical testing, and they found you know during the first fifteen minutes of all these tests, there wasn't really m- many differences between groups. Um, from how many correct, things of that nature. Uh, They gave these individuals then like a five-minute break, and then when they came back again on the second round, they found that the group that was taking creatine significantly outperformed uh, the group that just had the placebo. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it from a lifting standpoint. You know, you really don't get that creatin output from the first set. It's more of like in your second and third sets when, you know, you're generally a little bit more fatigued. Uh, With the creatine, you're able to pump out a few more sets. So that's what, or reps, and that's what kind of made me think about when I was looking at this test was during the first round, no difference. Once they had a little break, it was kind of like their break between sets of, you know, uh, uh, whatever they're doing lifting wise, Uh, going back, doing this second round of cognitive test, significantly outperformed. And the other cool area that I didn't have a chance to get into during the talk was looking at the mental health aspect of creatine. Um, So again, going over to the other fields, uh, it was, you know, there's been a few different studies showing when combined with, you know, various uh, antidepressant medications like uh, your SSRI, so that'd be like your Paxil or peroxidine, things of that nature, they found that when that was combined with creatine, they actually got a synergistic effect where the group with creatine, they both uh, improved symptoms, but the creatine group had significantly greater outcomes on that level.
0: Okay, just a little insertion here. We're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll have more of the conference roundtable. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry, and what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, "This is why I consume extra protein." This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety. Uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more so again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry, you can just google that and uh, I do full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book but that's not why I did it I did it so we can all have something uh, our particular population uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating, thanks
5: fall and soon winter will be upon us as the holidays approach and your thoughts turn to giving please consider your friends here at IronRadio.org. over the past several years there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that iron radio stays on the air for years to come iron radio is here for you but as with any public radio type format the show is listener supported that's where you come in for just four dollars per month you can become a supporting member keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page, or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Thanks for helping to create a place for better internet programming for all strength and muscle sports, and... Happy holidays.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's lawnman7. On Twitter, if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So, lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks like your weekly fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. So that brings us to the next day, which was this morning, uh, Saturday. And uh, these talks were not so much about mental health, although there were a few aspects that still trickled in, of course. But um, the first talk was on heart rate variability and how it um, indicates... Training results for your heart, myocardial adaptation. That was Dr. Frank Wyatt. And he had said a few things throughout the weekend. I like this guy. He's a cyclist. He's so enthused about cycling, he actually created a minor at his university. And they get scholarships for cycling. We need to do that with lifting.
5: Yes.
0: But... Um, he had made some interesting comments uh, throughout the weekend too about how you know your heart rate is so high when you're doing fairly low rest kinds of resistance training. You know that he calls it cardio, in his students he doesn't like them to use the term cardio, uh, meaning you know steady state, sixty percent of your max kinds of stuff. So when he's lifting, he tells students, "I am doing cardio." And I thought that was kind of an interesting point. You know, he, was, he, he did make a comment, in fact, to you, Mike, I think, mm-hmm. about uh, the morphology of the heart was a little bit different, but both were healthy, you know, whether mm-hmm. you're a runner or a lifter. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on that one? Or should I move on?
4: Uh, so I just have one thought on this. So he was talking a little bit about sort of volume versus pressure overload. So one of the things I've been kind of interested in lately that I need to do more research is, so if you do only lifting, Basically, your heart, you'll see some increase in size, especially in the left ventricle, um, because it's having to work across greater pressures. Um, But then you've also got more of the endurance side. So if you're doing, say, moderate duration cycling, you actually see that you get more of what's called a volume overload. So you get a little bit more stretching of the cardiac. So I was just curious on his thoughts if people who lift chronically, do they need to do some more long-term cardio Uh, His bias was probably not, since they're both very healthy, and it is true that if you look at a diseased population, that you're having to put out against a high pressure, so if your blood pressure, for example, is high, the heart's having to do a lot more uh, work across there, so I don't know, so I'm going to do a little bit more research into that, I've talked to Kenneth Jay a fair amount about it too, and he's real big into more continuous type of cardio for more just cardiac uh, health and stuff. So, I'm always interested in getting people's different opinions, and it's one of those things I probably need to do more research on again that'll add to my ever growing list.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I used to think that lifters, you you know, you'll hear people talk about how uh, people who weight train have thicker left ventricles. And you can see this on ECG, right, on an EKG strip, Um, but usually only if somebody's also using. Anabolic steroids. I mean, at least at first glance, you know, you might be able to detect small variations in this in this what they call LVH, left ventricular hypertrophy. But it it is interesting to note, like Mike said, that when you're a lifter, you're you're bearing down and you're pushing against a certain amount of uh, pressure in your bloodstream, and how that just looks different from you know the volume of that left ventricle changes in an aerobic athlete, but not so much the thickness of the muscle. Um, but it's a good point about it's not always under pressure. You're not constantly... I mean, think of your heart. Imagine it doing 60, 70, quote, unquote, repetitions per minute, always against pressure. That's why a high blood pressure patient's heart enlargement does not look like a lifter's. Anyway, the next one was on the... Uh, it, there was a little meta-analysis of no-carb diets. Um... I think maybe more low-carb diets the way that he defined it. Mike, let's have you start with that one again. So uh, this uh, Dalton Smith, this, he was a recent graduate student, I think new, newly graduated maybe, but he uh, was selecting different low-carbohydrate diets and looking at their performance impacts. And I, I didn't think his what he was finding was shocking. It was more validating. What do you think, Mike?
4: Yeah, I would agree with that. So, like Dr. Lani was saying, they were looking at basically lower carbohydrate diets. He did a meta analysis of eventually including, I think, eight studies in it. And it's a little bit hard to tease everything out to because you've got different amounts of protein. You've got, there's a couple of sort of the classic ketogenic diets. I'm doing my little air quotes here. Um, <laughs> included in it, like the paoli study, which I don't think is really a ketogenic diet, but that's a different discussion. Um, and at the end, after they do all the meta-analysis and all the statistics wizardry, they uh, so they <laughs> they found that if you went on a lower carbohydrate diet or pretty low carb diet, you did see uh, the use of fat go up as a percentage. He did show one thing showing that fat was a little bit higher even at higher intensities, but they both were over an RER of one, so that may not really matter too much. Um, And then like most lifters would expect, you'd see RPE, so rating and perceived exertion, how hard it felt you were working actually went up. And I think that was kind of the main conclusion. I don't remember them seeing any difference in weight. And then these were generally healthy people also, so it wasn't a diseased population. And again, you're trying to pull together a whole bunch of studies too, which, you know, just by doing that has its limits too.
0: Grant, didn't you say something about the actual calorie intake on the low-carb diets went up because the yeah. the, the, the energy density of the high-fat stuff?
2: Yeah, he had said that on average the uh, the non-control group had four to 500 more calories per day than the control group.
0: It's, it's interesting and it's, it's a practical tip to, to be careful with, right? If you're going to cut carbs, um, I know a lot of lifters will focus on fats or proteins, but uh, you can really jack up your calorie counts more quickly with fats. I guess maybe that's obvious at nine calories per gram. In theory... I mean, there's a lot of things you have to have to control here, but you, in theory, you could almost eat twice as much food from a volume perspective if it were carbs compared to the fat. So if you're, you drop out the carbs, there's less volume to munch on, and you know. So if you're going to eat that same volume, but it's fatty foods, yeah. your calorie intake would be higher. You know, it's just like I said. There's a lot of things to control for there. It is neat though that you can, just like with exercise, you can induce your body to become a better fat burning machine. You can also have some of those. Gentle, you know, inductions or or eating results instead of training results where you're you're better, like Mike was saying, you know, burning fat, the RER, their uh, respiratory exchange ratio suggested they were better fat burners. But what wasn't surprising to me was at high intensity exercise. Like Mike said, they felt, it felt harder. Their RPE was higher. It felt harder. And the more you know about exercise physiology, the more you realize you're using carbohydrate, your glycogen is fuel at higher intensities. So it kind of sucks to try to do high-intensity <laughs> stuff when there's no carbs in your body. You know. And so I know some people argue, many people do. In fact, some people I respect that you, you can eventually become so fat-adapted that your performance and you, you know, your perceived exertion are actually still quite good. Uh, even at higher intensities, but I have a hard time processing that one. I really do. Uh, now, he, all he did show from his meta-analysis that medium intensity, moderate, like 50% of your maximum, uh, did seem to benefit, even from a performance perspective. But that makes sense because fat metabolism by nature is slower. Fat oxidation is slower. And so when you're only going at 50%, you can maybe get a benefit, I guess. We there was a study on muscle glycogen in competitive cyclists when they were at altitude. Does anybody have any thoughts on that one? The one thing I got out of the talk
3: looking at uh, the carbohydrates at altitude, you know, with the things that they controlled for, I didn't think it necessarily showed that altitude had effect on things that was kind of uncontrolled there. Um, But my takeaway from it was, you know, especially working with a lot of athletes myself, is. They found that even at 10 to 12 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight, uh, which is right now said as the highest end marker is what they're recommending for people you know, doing excessive endurance work, they found that even at those levels of carbohydrate intakes, they were not able to maintain muscle glycogen levels. Um, so that was one of the interesting things that I pulled uh, from that
0: talk. Yeah, it was more of a, a practical, like, I, I don't think, yeah, it, it, she showed that altitude was causal uh, necessarily because I think there needed maybe a little bit more tighter control on how hard they were
1: cycling and exactly how many grams they are eating each day. Well, yeah, because, I mean, she, she said that they all got to that 12 to 10, or 10 to 12 grams per kg or whatever it was for intake, but what if they just would have eaten more carbohydrates? Would they have actually gotten back to baseline? That was my question. Yeah, and my thought was if the cycling was significantly harder, they would deplete more
0: glycogen, you know, that sort of thing. But having said that, I did, like, she was using a new kind of device. It was an ultrasound-based, is is that what it was? And it can't give you how many grams of glycogen in your muscle, but it can give you changes compared to baseline. So it could be a handy tool uh, to be able to say, I'm glycogen depleted. You know, and
4: then maybe adjust your training accordingly or something like that. But, uh, and they're pretty high altitude too. So they're doing pretty heavy, intense work, pretty high altitude. So I've often wondered, even if you're trained, how much of that your recovery may not necessarily be aerobic in nature. Maybe your recovery is a little bit more anaerobic, possibly too, because of the altitude, the stressors. They're training, you know, back to back for seven days in a row. We asked about lactate to see where the lactate levels were, and yeah, they didn't have that data yet, but I think that would be interesting to see if they're just producing a crap ton of lactate, even just at rest, which probably is a guess.
0: Maybe practical tip is, even when you feel like you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, because on average, they were. Yeah,
4: 700 uh, a day.
0: Yeah, 700 grams a day, and they were still glycogen depleted compared to their baseline measurements. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's
3: what I found most fascinating.
0: Okay, um, let's talk about Corey's talk. Corey mentioned um, he dug into strength training, uh, body comp, and mental health. And I was running in and out of the lobby this time, so I want to hear what Corey has to say.
1: Yeah, so I talked about kind of the relationship between resistance training and I really kind of end up being memory and cognition. Um, because you know, everyone knows that exercising is good for your brain. Right? And there's always been links there. We hear it in the media all the time. Exercise is good for your brain. Well, a lot of that's going to stem from aerobic exercise. Um, there's not as much or there hasn't been as much on resistance training, which is why I think Lonnie asked me to do the talk. Uh, and so the aerobic connection uh, from like a mechanistic standpoint has largely always been brain-derived neurotrophic factor, right, or BDNF, uh, which has various effects primarily in like the hippocampus, for like neurogenesis, angiogenesis, neuro, uh, neuroplasticity um, and things like that. And some researchers have been trying to figure out if resistance training does the same thing. Like, do we have the same mechanism? Uh, and there was actually one really good paper that looked at both. Like, what's the mechanism for aerobic versus uh, resistance training? And actually, they're a little divergent. So resistance training actually is going to exert... Similar effects from angiogenesis and neuroplasticity and neurogenesis through IGF one, uh, which is kind of, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, now IGF one can actually increase BDNF indirectly, so you actually could get BDNF through resistance training via IGF one. It just may not be as direct or maybe as much, but they still have the same effects. Uh, and then that's one of those same papers uh, actually talked about. Indirectly, if you have like insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, you can actually get BDNF resistance. Uh, so then IGF one could be a pathway around that to still get the cognitive benefits of exercise if you resistance train versus uh, aerobic training. I mean that makes sense to us, right? Uh, if if you have insulin resistance, more anaerobic training might be a little bit better for you because you're going to have a demand for that glucose. Uh, but then the IGF one is going to be more of the cognitive side. Um, so then in the research, uh, it was a little over the place (laughs) because no one's looking at the same type of memory. Uh, there's all these different, uh, tests for different brain functions. So one may be looking at working memory versus episodic memory versus, uh, executive function, which in, in and of itself has like eight different components. So which one of those are they looking at in testing? And I didn't really delve too much into, okay, is, is this a good test for, for specific uh, functions? I just kind of took it at face value. Uh, but for resistance training specifically, you know, information processing speed seemed to be like almost linear with intensity of exercise. So how fast can you like, figure out a simple solution to something, uh, as well as episodic memory, which would be kind of memory of certain situations. Uh, when you didn't know you had to remember it, so like for us, that would be um, maybe what Mike's wearing today, or something like that, or what you had for <laughs> mm-hmm. what you had for lunch yesterday. Like you, you is there in front of you, and you like I looked at Mike today. I didn't know maybe that I would have to remember what he's wearing, but my good episodic memory—if that's high functioning for you—you you would remember that. So if I think for as a teacher. You know, if students are in class and resistance training enhances episodic memory, they may be, be retain more from class every single day. If you're resistance training continually and you're sitting in situations where you're you're having to remember things, um, just stuff like that, that in general could enhance memory. Uh, for other things um, where you're, you're having to make maybe working memory, where they're maybe having to do something and remember instructions at the same time. Okay, what do I have to do here as I'm processing that? There's maybe more of an inverted U principle. So where more moderate strength training enhanced that, and then once they got to a very, very high intensity, it actually went down a little bit. Um, And there's a few times where that that happened, (laughs) but in a lot of them, they weren't using trained subjects. Okay, So they would come in, untrained and have to do like three sets of eight to 12 with 80% one RM, uh, with like one minute rest, which I look at that and that's insane. That's, that's maxing out almost every set. So it would make sense to me that that may on the short term, which a lot of them were more short, short term would decrease cognitive performance because you just crush yourself, <laughs> you know? Um, but then there's some other stuff I didn't talk about which would be more like mood and confidence increases because there there was, there was stuff on that. Uh, there's a few studies on adolescents that uh, one of them was in obese adolescence that through the course of like eight weeks, even though they may not have gained much strength or even lose body fat, measures of overall confidence and well-being uh, were, were better. Uh, and then one looked at... Uh, adolescent girls versus adolescent boys and both groups gained strength but actually they and the adolescent girls were the only ones that had this like mood and confidence increase so i thought that was kind of interesting so almost all the long-term stuff was showing benefit in in the elderly it was all about improving uh mood and then quality of life measures which was was i mean that's to be expected right they're they're doing something regularly, they're moving, they're getting the extra blood flow to the brain, but they're getting stronger, uh, and so that makes sense that would improve those those measures. Cool. Uh,
0: there was only one more here. Uh, the final talk was from uh, Mr. Arezio Sousa. I might be butchering his name, I apologize, but he was... Um, Sort of, I don't, pushing's not the right word, but he was, you know, spreading the word about this new device uh, that I think, Mike, you were you are suggesting, you know, when can I get this as part of like my smartphone Bluetooth monitoring? And mm-hmm. you're, being the engineer of the group, you're usually most in tune with different gadgets and biometric type stuff. So maybe you could talk about what, what his uh, device does or how we might use it.
4: Yeah, so the device is actually a MOXY sensor, so M-O-X-Y. So it's been on the market for quite a while. Um, I first actually met the, the owner of the company, who's one of the main designers at a Design and Medical Devices conference several years ago. Um, so what's cool is, like, normally you can even buy the, the cheap pulse oximeters now on Amazon and stuff. But that's measuring arterial. What this is cool is it's actually looking directly at the muscle. So you've got the little device, and you stick it over the muscle. We did a little demo with Sean. And you can get an idea of basically kind of like hemoglobin and sort of blood flow dynamics to the muscle. And what I thought is like really interesting about it is you can then, in theory, do training to specific levels, right? So if I want to deplete you down to, let's say, only 20% left and then wait for you to recover to 100%, Or maybe I want to have incomplete rest, so you only get to 60%. Now I'm going to have you maybe do sprints on a bike again or squats or or whatever. So I thought was really interesting is that you can then look at that physiologic parameter and then maybe possibly change your training around that. So instead of maybe doing 10 reps, maybe you're like uber fast twitch or whatever and your rep count is different than someone who's doing long distance running or things of that nature. Um, The downside is that right now it's only what they call AMT Plus. Uh, It's not Bluetooth. It's just a different way of how the data is communicated back and forth. Um, You can interact with it now on the Garmin watch, which I've heard is pretty good. Um, So it's getting better. But what I think would be super cool in the future is if you have, let's say, your iPad set up, and you can say put a heart rate strap on someone, put the little sensor on the muscle that you're primarily trying to measure or maybe a couple of them. And then you can get basically live readings as they're doing it with heart rate and you know basically how much sort of oxygen is getting to the muscle, watching that go down. And so it just kind of gives you another uh, parameter to play around with. The cost isn't too bad. I mean, it's like 700 to 1500 So it's definitely not cheap. Um, but the interface, I think, is still a little bit kludgy, which again is just sort of my biased opinion, but I haven't picked one up yet. I've almost picked one up since they've, they've, they've come out, but if they had a better interface than Bluetooth, I think it would, would probably be worthwhile, I think.
3: The other interesting thing that uh, kind of is brainstorming in my head as was going through the talk was uh, you know, so many supplement companies now, they have their, be their nitric oxide supplements, things of that nature, and You know, there's very little data supporting most of these supplements. The cool thing I thought of was, you know, this is something that, uh, say, a lab could bring in and actually start testing these products, you know, in real time. Are they, you know, are they actually getting more oxygen to the muscle? And is having more oxygen to the muscle, giving, you know, more reps and things of that nature, you know, which, you know, as lifters, that's what we care about. Um, So that's the other kind of cool uh, potential with this application if it comes out you know uh where you can start really testing these pre-workouts which you know we'll talk about how jacked and ripped with
0: uh, muscle blood flow you're gonna be getting <laughs> so that was the 2016 uh asep conference uh, we did it in conjunction with our research club and um I thought it was good. It's a neat group. There's maybe five or six universities, you know. Usually small contingents from each group—a professor with a two or three graduate students, or that sort of thing. There were people with uh, from industry as well, and and that kind of thing. The, 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 actually, the gentleman who spoke last was a physical therapist and kind of moving in the research direction. So, hopefully, you can uh, pick some things out of that. Like I said, I think podcasting is great for bringing you on site so you can uh, get a taste of something literally as it's happening instead of waiting for something to appear in a book or an article months down the road so uh, having said that we'll see you next time Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.